from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Air Force will have a new Chief of Staff. General Charles Q. Brown will take over as Chief of Staff of the Air Force after the Senate confirmed him 98-0 to zero on Tuesday. Brown will officially take the job from General David Goldfein after a swearing-in ceremony August 6th. U.S. Cyber Command will get a new Deputy Commander. Air Force Major General Charles Moore will get a promotion to Lieutenant General and serve as General Paul Nakasone's number two. He's moving up from the Director of Operations job at Cyber Command at Fort Meade. The Secretaries of Homeland Security, State, Defense and Commerce and the Director of the Office of Management and Budget will start a requirements review for building a fleet of icebreakers. A memo from President Trump to those secretaries and others calls for an icebreaking fleet that's tested and ready by fiscal 2029. The memo directs the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz, and Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, to send the White House a study that includes how many icebreakers and what kinds and sizes the military should buy. About 20 veterans die each day by suicide, and mental health experts say that number could be on the increase because of coronavirus. Hotline calls to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America are up by about 50 percent. Chris Molero is CEO of NeuroFlow. Chris, thanks for coming on the program. How has the landscape changed in delivering mental health services uh, both inside DOD and Veterans Affairs as a result of coronavirus? Thank you for having me today. Um, it's obviously an important topic, and um, if if there's anything uh, good potentially that have, has come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is it's the, the adoption and the comfort level of adoption of um, remote monitoring technologies and telehealth technologies. So, you know, there's this there's this kind of uh, new level of adoption that is frankly unprecedented. Uh, in terms of delivering care and receiving care remotely uh, and out of necessity. That, that's being seen by both mental health and uh, it's not exclusive to mental health. Uh, but a big challenge with mental health care has always been um, access to that care. Um, some people would need to travel hours to go to the nearest psychiatrist or therapist. Um, and then there's a certain level of, for right or wrong, there's a certain level of stigma associated with going to a a therapist in person. Um, so if you can create new ways of accessing that um, that important level of help, um, you know you you improve outcomes and overall wellness and resiliency. Um, and and that technology has become more prevalent than ever today. The spread of that technology is happening inside VHA. It's also happening inside DHA. What would you like to see those organizations do to proliferate the? the cultural acceptance of the technology and not just the the technical proliferation. Right. I mean, there's a there's a number of ways that uh, we can do that in terms of adoption engagement with these technologies. Uh, I think first and foremost, it's about education and setting this the the expectations appropriately. So the you know, these sorts of communications a way to be monitored and engaged in your care whether it's mental health care or otherwise, uh, is secure, it's HIPAA compliant, the data is encrypted. Um, and in, in many cases, you can, 
you could be seen by someone outside of like your traditional organization. So if there's privacy concerns with, I don't want my chain of command to find out about me going to a therapist, which we know from a policy standpoint that that really doesn't matter, but the perception is, is what matters in a lot of cases. So educating service members and veterans that these are available, they're easy to access, and that there's different levels of care as well, uh, which is important. You know, not all mental health care is about medication management with antidepressants and th those sorts of things. Um, there are remote monitoring technologies that don't even require a face-to-face -face visit. Um, it could be through text messaging, or it doesn't even have to be with a person, that there's um, asynchronous communication, so not in real time with somebody, but more of self-help measurements and tools through technology. And so um, there are a variety of different levels of measurement that you could avail to service members and veterans, and educating them on that is a key component to driving adoption. And what you're talking about there is where I wanted to go next, Chris, and that is the, the emphasis that I've seen so far on technological advancements in healthcare focuses on face-to-face -face interaction like we're doing right now in a, in a telehealth-type environment. And it strikes me, as, as right. you just started to describe, we're farther along than that now. There's a lot more to this than that that can benefit somebody who is in a situation that he or she doesn't want to be in. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, I, I'm certainly guilty of this. When I hear telehealth, I automatically go to thinking about this sort of video communication. I have to log in on my phone or my computer and I'm going to talk to a doctor. Um, that certainly is a component of telehealth, but really telehealth is a broader umbrella that allows you to um, receive care and communicate with professionals and healthcare providers um, through a variety of uh, means. Um, I mean, even telephone call could be uh, considered telehealth care. Um, asynchronous or synchronous communication through text and phones could be considered that type of care. Um, and so there, there's a variety of different levels and ways to engage with that, which, which really is exciting because it broadens the aperture of, of how we can use the technology and, and hopefully reach more people um, in a more efficient and effect, effective manner that need the help. Sounds like, we have about a minute left, sounds like you're talking about uh, some of the cutting edge technologies we talk about on this program on an ongoing basis like artificial intelligence and others. Is that a fair read on my part? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to the notion that, you know, not all mental health care is treated, is created equally. Um, there are a variety of different levels of care uh, depending on the type of, uh, you know, diagnosis you have, uh, maybe you're not diagnosed with anything, you have just minor anxiety. We all get stressed, have anxiety or depression now and again. And so there's different levels of care that you can access. Now, we can use artificial intelligence and machine learning to gather a bunch of data that's already in your health records or activity level data to get a better picture for who you are as a person so we can make better recommendations to you. Like, should you go see a therapist? Should you go see a psychiatrist for medications? Should you just maybe work on your sleep habits? Uh, we could use AI to drive those better recommendations. Chris Molero, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate your insight today. Thank you, sir. Up next, reading the nuclear tea leaves from Russia. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what an arms control treaty could look like between the U.S. and Russia. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
A new executive order in Russia outlines its uh, official policy on nuclear deterrence for the first time in public. Now that the policies are spelled out, arms control treaties may be on the horizon. Sarah Bidgood is director of the Eurasian Non-Proliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, writing about the executive order in Defense News. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. My takeaway from what you're writing is that you see in this document a lot of potential for cooperation between the United States and Russia. Why so? That's right, Francis. Good morning. Um, I do see potential for cooperation here in this document, in part because we know from looking at the history of U.S.-Soviet and U.S.-Russian arms control cooperation that having shared threats is something that is really important to enabling cooperation to go forward, even at really difficult moments in the relationship. And I see this document laying out some of the perceived threats that Russia sees, and I think that that uh, points to some parallels in U.S. declaratory policy as well that could provide a basis uh, for arms control or nonproliferation cooperation. You point out in this piece that we're kind of on hold right now. Uh, the rift between Washington and Moscow has brought some, most bilateral efforts in this area to a halt. That rift is driven by events that are not necessarily based around nuclear deterrence. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, although I think that there's sort of a chicken and egg phenomenon happening here where... Uh, because of the breakdown in arms control and non-proliferation cooperation, there are actually fewer opportunities for the United States and Russia to interact on these really sensitive issues. And in part because of that breakdown in cooperation, you're seeing fewer opportunities to build trust, to build personal rapport, to facilitate engagement and transparency. And we know that those are the kinds of things that contribute to the doing of arms control policy. You write, uh, sections of Russia's document offer additional glimpses into Moscow's perceived threats, what are the most serious ones that the United States should be prepared to at least consider, if not address, Sarah? That's right. So I see a couple of areas where this really comes through for me. And one of them is in a section of the document that is looking at what Russia is calling risks that could escalate into military dangers that deterrence would then be used to neutralize. And one of the ones that they highlight in particular is um, attacks on command and control structures or structures that would prevent Russia from being able to launch a retaliatory nuclear strike. I see something similar happening in the 2018 U.S. Nuclear Posture Review, where that document states that nuclear weapons could, for instance, be used under uh, unusual non-nuclear circumstances, including an attack on U.S. command and control structures. So um, I see the potential for there to be an agreement to prevent or prohibit attacks on command and control structures between the United States and Russia as an area that might potentially be of interest to both countries. I note that I see another area. Oh, excuse me, please go ahead. Please go ahead. Sure. So another area where I see the potential for cooperation is with respect to non-proliferation. And for instance, in the Russian document, there's a reference to the fact that the uncontrolled proliferation of nuclear weapons or delivery systems is the type of thing that could be mitigated with deterrence. Uh, that's also obviously a salient point in the U.S. declaratory document as well. Um, we know that there's a lengthy history of U.S.-Russia cooperation on these issues as well. So I see a revival of that in the cards. And I note in the passage that I read a moment ago, Sarah, that you used the term perceived threats. Is it your sense that what Moscow outlines in this document as the, th the threats that it is worried about, are they reasonable threats? I is their list, is it, is it reasonable? Yeah, I mean, that's always, I suppose, an evaluation that's in the eye of the beholder. But 
I think I'm less concerned about whether the threats themselves are reasonable than what they tell us about what Russia is seeing and what the view looks like from Moscow. So I think it's really important for the United States to be able to understand not just what Russian policy is, but also what are they responding to? What actions on the part of the United States and NATO is Russia reacting to? And is that precipitating uh, a change in their threat perception that um, is something that we should really be paying attention to? Is it your sense that this document is more significant, less significant, or the significance doesn't change in the context of the fact that President Putin is trying to change the constitution of the country in order for him to stay in power much longer? I don't see a really significant relationship between those two things. I think this document is more telling us, again, how Russia is responding to and evaluating uh, U.S. and NATO behavior. It, it's very clear that Russia is quite concerned about the threat of a conventional uh, new, uh, attack against Russia or its its allies. And so I think that's something that we can really absorb and learn from on the United States side uh, when we're thinking about um, perhaps ways to facilitate cooperation with Russia or better understand uh, what they're seeing and responding to. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Sarah. What will you watch as far as the, real, the, the way this impacts the relationship between the, the United States and Russia over the next year, 18 months, two years, to determine if we've looked at this the way that you think that we should look at this? Well, I would hope to see some sort of extension of the New START Treaty. I think that that would be a very serious indication that at least on the United States side, there is interest in facilitating and sustaining some of those mechanisms that can allow for more ambitious arms control in the future. So that's something I'm certainly going to be looking for. Um, I'll also look for cooperation at the now delayed uh, 2020 non-proliferation treaty meeting. Uh, we'll see if there's anything there for us to, to observe, but my hope is that uh, the two largest nuclear weapon states are certainly able to sustain their engagement in this really important area. Sarah Bidgood, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for talking about your peace and defense news. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Up next, lessons from a 50-year-old war to apply to today's war. Straight ahead on Government Matters, ideological wars and what it takes to win. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. This month is the 53rd anniversary of one of the shortest wars in history. Lessons from that war can inform the war on terror. According to Colonel Frank Sobchak, U.S. Army retired, he's a contributor at Miriam Institute, writing in Newsweek comparing the war on terror to the Six-Day War in 1967. Frank, thanks very much for coming on the program. I mentioned before we went on the air, I normally start at the beginning and move to the end of a piece like yours. I want to start at the end and come back to the comparison and contrast to the Six-Day War. You write in this piece, warfare has changed. In this new paradigm, conflict is timeless. Rather than deny that these changes have occurred, we should recognize and accept them for what they are. Tell me more about the changes that you see in your experience and why you think maybe we're not accepting them the way that we should. Yeah, thank you again, Francis, for having me on. And I think that's really a great place to start. So. There are a series of theorists who have argued that warfare has fundamentally changed. And whether you it's Max von Crevel, Sean McFate, or Rupert Smith, they argue that the type of warfare that we saw during World War II, World War I, kind of a very traditional style of warfare, that type of conflict is much less likely to happen 
now uh, than in the past. And that the ways that warfare has changed is that rather than fighting a nation state, kind of another country, our opponents are most likely to be uh, kind of, you know, nebulous, transnational, non-state armed groups. Making, and rather than fighting us on the field of open battle, our opponents are much more likely to kind of hide amongst the population and to use the population almost as a screen or a shield. This makes warfare last a much, lo much longer time. And rather than the kind of short, decisive victories that we see both in Israel's 1967 Six-Day War or in America and its allies during World War II, kind of the you know, epic signing of the Japan's uh, surrender under the guns of the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay, these theorists in my eye also argue that that type of decisive victory is much less likely to happen. So what it, what it comes down to, Frank, is my, my takeaway broadly from the piece is that war will always be us versus them. It just becomes a much more difficult through these changes that you're describing to determine who the them is. Am I reading that right? For sure. That is certainly a key component of it. Um, and, you know, again, in, in whether it be the 67 Six-Day War, uh, Israel's enemies, uh, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, they had tanks, they had aircraft, they painted the national symbols on their aircraft. In World War II, similarly, our opponents did the same thing. We knew where our enemies were, and we knew they identified themselves. In this modern style of warfare, uh, our opponents hide amongst the civilian population, and that makes war much more difficult uh, to prosecute and to carry out. Is it your argument, Frank, that war has changed and will be this way moving forward, or that one that this is a type of warfare that we need to be prepared to fight? Example, in the context of the national defense strategy, I have a hard time imagining China or Russia undertaking the kind of war that you're talking about, although uh, opponents like Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, what you're proposing makes perfect sense, and it's what we've seen to a degree over the last several years. I certainly think it really presents a challenge um, because in some ways the United States uh, as a global superpower has to be prepared for both in some ways um, because the threats of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, other non-state armed groups, they're not going to go away. Um, much like fighting the ideologies that we fought, whether it be in the Civil War, um, uh, proponents of slavery and white supremacy, or during World War II of Nazism and fascism. Those ideologies are very hard to destroy. And even after you defeated their opponents on the field of battle, they continue to fight. And even if you decide that you want to terminate that conflict, it's the old adage, the enemy has, still has a vote. And if you decide that the conflict is over, oftentimes your opponent has not decided the same thing and wants to continue the conflict. The challenge also, I would argue, is that in many cases, uh, China or Russia will also try to con have a conflict with us kind of in the gray space, in the space in between traditional conflict and, you know, kind of non-armed uh, non conflict. And that many of the same tactics that are used by these non-state armed groups will be used by nation-state actors. What you're writing about in Newsweek, Frank, is strategic and it, it's logical and I commend it to people who are interested in that. What should we extrapolate from the strategic elements 
as far as what the construction of the force should look like, both personnel and hardware? So I think uh, several things. Uh, first is recognizing that ideologies are difficult to destroy and that a key component of, of conflict is with our opponents hiding in and amongst the civilian population. Um, our organizing, training, and equipping should be focused on being able to discriminate between military targets and civilian targets. We must recognize that warfare has changed, and it is very unlikely that in the future that our opponents will simply park their tanks or military material out in the open for us to easily destroy, kind of along the ways that Saddam Hussein did in the 1991 Gulf conflict. That is very unlikely to happen again. Our opponents, even the nation-state actors, whether they be Korea or China or Russia, are going to hide their military forces amongst civilian populations to make it harder to, to destroy, as well as to create collateral information operations challenges for us. So in terms of training and equipping our forces, we must make sure that we have the ability to discriminate between civilian and military targets and to very precisely be able to target just the military as much as possible. Colonel, it's a great piece in Newsweek, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about it and its implications for the force. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much for having me on, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.